Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. We've got you covered for top football chat. Today, we're talking Euros and UEFA's big decision. We check in on Honorginho, who's locked up for six months, unlike literally everybody else. There's a word on celebrity football endorsements and flicks and kicks with a walk down Green Street. Not as tough as Mean Street, not as intellectual as Sesame Street. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. division there with their track isolation because listener today's totally football show is remote recorded hope you enjoy our new direction i'm here over there we have duncan alexander hello hello james how are you hello i'm well duncan jack lang's with us hi jack hello james nice to see you on my screen here Woo! and also adrian clark Great. Everybody well. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing well, thank you. I've survived uh, a close encounter with a, uh, a statistician in my local park the other day, Mr. Duncan Damn. Alexander. Wow, yeah, you guys uh, bumped into each other in the park. We did, and you know that used to be a nice thing to do, to see someone you knew as you were out and about, but now it's the most terrifying prospect known to man. So we, we had a brief elbow touch and then, and then moved on. Right. Bumping into a statistician in the park certainly wasn't, wasn't previously a, a, an unpleasant experience. Adrian Clark, what about the footballers? How are they dealing with this eternal pre-season? Oh, they're going to be going stir-crazy, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to be fun for them. Um, I had plenty of experience of training all week and then not getting to play at the weekend. And it sounds like every every footballer up and down the land is going to have to put up with that. But, but yeah, look, they're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, they'll miss the buzz, that is for sure. Um, right. but, but the banter will be uh, flying around, I'm sure. Oh, excellent. Uh, football is known for the creative ways of replacing the buzz, of course, so fingers crossed for them. In the meantime, Tuesday, of course, UEFA held their virtual summit with representatives of the various federations and major stakeholders video conferencing in, and many, I like to think, in their underpants and pyjamas, to talk about the Euros and how to salvage this season. To explain what was decided there and also what wasn't, please welcome back Rory Smith of the New York Times. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, Rory. Hello, James. How are you doing? Oh, very well. Thank you. Rory, what's the news? Well, I think at the moment we're kind of in a holding pattern, aren't we, really? So so UEFA have done the, the one thing we kind of knew they would, uh, which was to push back Euro 2020 so that it's now Euro 2021. Personally, I'm a little bit disappointed that they decided they had to put like a hard date on when that would happen. Not quite sure why they felt that they had to do that right now. Um, but it, what they've done is they've created space in the calendar. They've said that they want to try and finish the leads across across Europe by June the 30th, if it's safe and advisable to do so. But they also, quite crucially, and I'm not normally one to kind of take a pop at other journalists, but I think I think a little there was an element of misreporting about that that I noticed on on Tuesday. They they have also got a contingency plan if finishing the leads by June the 30th is not safe and advisable, which I think given the current situation would seem slightly ambitious, which is that they are prepared to adjust qualification for the Champions League and Europa League next season to give the leads even more time. So they've kind of left everything as open as they can, but by, by placing the Euros next summer, they've taken quite a lot of the options off the table, and I, I wonder if they might in time come to regret that a little bit. Why does putting it next summer take options off the table, apart from the fact that it's going to be a pretty bumper summer of sport with all the other stuff that's taking place then? Well, yeah, and we still have to work out kind of what, what other events, other major events in other major sports are going to do, because they might also want to, to take up that time. And I think that may have been UEFA's logic, that they kind of needed to put their 
their flag in the sand to get their deck chair down so that they um that they knew exactly when they were going to be. Um, I think the problem is it it takes away the possibility of holding it in January or December this year, which would have then enabled them potentially to to adjust the seasons to run February November February November in the run up to the Qatar World Cup. That that would have been a very complicated solution, but it it may yet turn out to be a necessary solution that they now can't do. And I think the other thing that's become clear over the last few days, given the government advice and the, the, the sort of projections we've seen, I don't think from anything we've been told about this pandemic so far that we should be assuming next season will be unaffected if we start it in September. There is a good chance we will not be able to finish it with a great big hullabaloo at the Champions League final in, in St. Petersburg. So I think that that may now be being factored into a lot of UEFA's conversations and the conversations the working groups are having about what to do with this season. Because I think you kind of have to look at next season a little, a little bit and think there is a decent chance that that will be affected to whatever we do with 2019-20. As Rafi said on, on Tuesday, um, as a devoted listener of the show, the, the Bundesliga have very much made it clear that they want to finish the season. I think that all of the leads will have realised now that, that the broadcasting contracts are going to be what drives this whole process, that they, they're going to need in some way to satisfy the broadcasters and at the same time hope the broadcasters don't lose a load of money on advertising and subscriptions and are still in a position for this whole model to work once right. this pandemic is, is under control. I don't think there's a specific date set now for when they have to decide anything by. UEFA's working groups will, will talk to each other, they'll, they'll report, they'll come up with solutions. Seferin spoke about plans A, B, C and D uh, in his statements on, on Tuesday. So I don't think there's any kind of rush or urgency at this point to say this is what the plan is going to be. I think that they will examine the various possibilities and I'd expect in the next week or two to be told that April the 4th, April the 3rd is not a realistic date to resume football. And then it may be that later in April we get another update about what they're planning on doing to see if they can fix everything. But ultimately, as a lot of people involved in those conversations have now realised, for once in their lives, they're not in control. The virus is in control, and that will be ultimately what decides whatever can happen. You can want to finish the leads. You may not get chance. You can want to play next season. You may not get chance. And I think they recognise that now. Rory, don't worry about the broadcasters. They've got World Championship Tetris going on. I think that's that there's going to come a point where that's what we're all watching, without mm. question. That and, and even worse, Australian rules football. Rory Smith of the New York Times, which was a paper people used to buy. They'd go out to shops and buy. Anyway, uh, A2M uh, says, I was thinking earlier about a few players in the twilight of their international careers and how the Euros being delayed might adversely affect them. A2M says, uh, well, it gives the examples of Giroud, Matuidi, Cazorla, uh, and names that come to, to mind. Jack, it's something I hadn't considered, actually, how a year's delay might, might I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo, for example. Ronaldo was the one that sprung to my mind. Obviously, he's chasing the international goals record at the moment. I'm sure there's still time for him to do that. But certainly, what, 35 now, another year in his legs... By next summer, I think that potentially could slightly reduce his his goal-scoring potential. Certainly, I think for Portugal, I think that will be a, a slight annoyance because he looked to be maybe not saving himself, but he's certainly coming into form at the moment. And, you know, 36 next summer, it will be a, a tough ask for him to fire them to glory again, I think. Mm. I mean, equally, which nations will, will be better off with a, with a year's... Uh, more preparation. People give the example of Norway, assuming they can get through their playoff with Serbia. They'll have uh, Erling Haaland, of course, and Martin Odegaard, uh, a year older, a year more mature. That's true. Also, England, if you think back to the uh, the Under-19 World Cup winning squad, all born in sort of 2000, you know, they'll be sort of 21, just coming into the start of their prime years so you know possibly uh, you know Phil Foden gives him a much bigger chance of of featuring at the Euros than he would have had oh, and Harry Kane might be fit as well Adrian 
Um, yeah, I, I agree on England benefiting from it for sure. I feel, I feel it's a it's a shame for the likes of, of Jack Grealish and James Madison because by the time Euro twenty twenty one comes around, will their stock be as high as it is now? And I'm, I'm pretty sure that Phil Foden would have maybe accelerated beyond them in terms of of his own credentials. In, in terms of players that might miss out, Manuel Neuer potentially, um, obviously mm. under under massive pressure anyway for his place from from various goalkeepers, uh, including. To Stegen and Leno and Jose Font is is thirty six and and Jan Vertonghen's another one. I mean, if, if he continues when we return, if he, if he continues playing as badly as he was for the next year, I don't think he'll be getting anywhere near the Belgian squad. By the way, in other Euro competition news, the Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam not happening. Everybody, it's been rearranged as well for twenty twenty one. What a year uh, next year is 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 looking like being. Uh, the rules though stipulate that the contestants cannot use the same songs next year. Duncan, you care about Eurovision. This is outrageous. Mildly. Um, and it does seem a bit outrageous. I mean, it's not like a song is going to age like Jan Vertonghen, really. So, I mean, I guess the only thing you could say is that presumably everyone being stuck indoors for months and months on end will lead to some introspection that could produce some of the best songs the continent's ever seen. So, you know, maybe well, it's that's for the true. Best. I haven't watched Eurovision um, for at least a decade, so so okay. yeah, it's not going to impact on my life. I bet you'd watch it now, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, you're damn right. I'll Ironically, <laughs> I reckon by the end of the month we'll all be drinking Bucks Fizz because that's all that's going to be left. So <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, uh, Duncan, you've been tweeting out random Premier League facts, which got you into a Twitter conversation with Nottingham Forest Joe Lolly. That's yes. how bored he is. Yes, well, he's he tends to interact quite a lot on on Twitter anyway. He's a he's a nice fella to use the okay. prompts. Um, rare footballer in some respects that he went to university, sort of came up a, a quite unusual route. But you know, he he wryly asked who was the top scoring left footed player born on the twenty fifth of August nineteen ninety two uh, in the Premier League, and it is him. But it was it was mm. good that he specified left footed. Otherwise, uh, he'd have been le- level with uh, Borja Baston. So, you know. Right. So were you doing, much like John Legend was at his piano, were you doing a kind of Instagram live just to give something back to a world in, in captivity? Well, I did a poll saying who wants a long list of incredibly niche football facts to, you know, essentially right. to get people through this, this tough time. And um, it was a 94% yes uh, vote. So that seemed a good reason. So, yeah, this has been, it will continue. And, you know, if it distracts people 2%, then that's good, I guess. Very kind of you, Duncan. Jack, your contribution to the world's entertainment is uh, a long form on the touching story of Man City legend Glauber Bertie, uh, which you've done for The Athletic, of course. I wasn't familiar with Glauber Bertie. There's no reason you would be, really, unless you were a a fairly uh, hardcore Manchester City fan because he only played six minutes of football and only stayed in England for, for a single season. And yet... What's interesting about him is that he has this cult hero status despite that. Uh, you know, we think of fans falling in love with players and it's usually for, for you know, great goals they've scored, trophies they've won. Sometimes for something a little bit more esoteric, maybe the, their style of football. But this was a guy who didn't even have enough time to make any impression really on those fans. And yet they, over the course of that season and especially subsequently, it I think it kind of turned from a from a mocking, ironic love into into something quite genuine, actually. And if you mention his name to City fans, in my experience, they they will usually smile. They'll kind of think back, oh yeah, that that poor guy only had a few minutes. And for this piece, I chatted with him for for half an hour. Really nice guy, actually. And his professionalism shone through for a start, but also just the the impact that those six minutes had made on his life seemed really. Uh, really significant so it was a a nice little chat did he even touch the ball in those six minutes I think so yeah because well he says that basically every time the ball came to him the the fans were to use his words went into raptures they were delirious he said he he took a corner and got a standing ovation for that I mean he was he was a centre-back who could play at left back so he, he wasn't a glamorous player and right. he was definitely overshadowed. It, it it was that little period when City had uh, Robinho and Elano and Joe. So he was definitely uh, the the fourth in line as far as Brazilians went. But the fact that he was an unused substitute 
20 times, I think, before that single game. And it was the last game of the season. It was the final five minutes. I think that all contributed to to a lot of sympathy for him. And just the way he kept going throughout that was uh, was certainly quite endearing. Yeah, Jack, I, I do think that some players become better footballers in the minds of fans the less that they play. I, I wonder if that's that's been the case for him. And did, did it, has he done stuff to sort of court... This this love affair has it has he sort of posed in Man City scarf or, or club shop attire since just 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 to cement that love. Well, he told me he's never been back to Manchester for a start, so it's not something I, I don't think he's going out of his way to, <laughs> to to get that acclaim. I read out to him on our phone call a TripAdvisor review of the Man City Stadium tour. Someone had gone and said, "Oh, this is a fantastic thing," but I can only give it four stars because there were, there was no Glauber Bertie exhibit. <laughs> I read this out to him and he, you know, he burst out laughing and he said, yeah, I actually get a lot of that. I get quite a lot of messages from, from City fans or I see articles online uh, calling, me a, calling me a cult hero. You know, it stayed with him those, those six minutes in that year. And, well, and what was interesting really is that even though he barely played and I think most footballers in that situation would be quite, quite annoyed kicking off, he really has fond affection for, for Mark Hughes, the manager. He said, yeah, he was a fantastic professional, treated me really well. So I think, you know, certainly that speaks volumes of his professionalism and patience, to be honest. I've, um, I've just run the numbers while you were talking, Jack. Ooh. He made 13 touches for City in the Premier League. Well, obviously wow. in the Premier League. Have you, have you got a pass completion for me there, Duncan? Yeah, well, incredibly, it's 100%. So in his Manchester City career, he did not misplace a single pass, Ooh. which you have to respect. I that think. is class. Wow. What a play. What a six minutes that was. The thing yeah. I love about Glauber is that also he, he made one appearance for Brazil in 2005, which was definitely the kind of era of like you get one cap and then sent off to Europe. To, and he moves to City, uh, or he moves to Nuremberg and then also gets to City. So it's, yeah. But that was the era of Ricardo Teixeira and Vandele Luxemburgo now when, when players, there was, uh, there was a court case and even I believe some jail time. Uh, over the fact that they were essentially selling caps in order to bump price tags for players overseas. Yeah, I mean, the, the name that's always referenced there is Rafael Scheidt, who, who later played for for Celtic, was was supposedly in the mix in, in that in that uh, scheme. But just on on Glauber's game, that that one game was fairly significant because it was it was Homadia's farewell match for Brazil. So it was it was a team picked of only domestic players against Guatemala. And I asked Glauber about this and he said the game kind of, you know, was enjoyable. Obviously, it was his one Brazil match. But what really stuck with him was going down to breakfast on the day of the game. He walks into the canteen and the technical staff are at one table, but none of the players have woken up yet. It's early. Apart from one, sat at the table is Homadio. And, and he said he just started shivering with, with nervousness because he was 20. Went and got some stuff from the buffet and sat down with him and he said could barely hold a conversation with him because he was so overawed by this. So again, one game wonder uh, really came to define his career. <laughs> I, I can claim to be a one cat wonder as well, actually. Um, I had one solitary cat for the England under 18s and it was against Switzerland at, at Vale Park. We won seven, two, I think. And I just got the feeling that the manager didn't want to put me on. I just had that feeling but the number two was applying a bit of pressure, saying, come on, like, we're six goals up. Let's let, let, let's start to put, put a few subs on. Let's give Clarkie a run out. I think, I think almost with a gun to his head, he, he stuck me on. And guess who I came on for? David Beckham. Um, you might no have heard way. of it. Yeah, you might have heard of wow. it. Yeah. Who, who um, was that under-19 manager? Sorry, um, under-18 manager. It was Ted Powell. He's, he sadly passed away now. But, but obviously, I was in the squad... I guess on merits, but but he was. I, I had that feeling that he wasn't inclined to put me on, but but the right. rest of the coaching staff just applied a bit of a bit of subtle pressure, and and, and I got a game, which was nice. Thirteen touches or more. Hundred <laughs> percent pass accuracy. <laughs> I do remember. I do remember actually shooting from near the halfway line. The goalkeeper scuffed a clearance straight to me, and I had a, I had a pop. Um, it, it it wasn't Beckham esque, though. I'm afraid. <laughs> All That's right. where we got the idea from. He sat on the bench <laughs> going, oh, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Next up, everybody, we're going to talk about a player who uh, never managed even six minutes in the Premier League, but certainly in the news at the moment, Honoljinho. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Getting a road named after you in your hometown 
special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Footballers in lockdown special, everybody. Amid the many strange things in the world right now, one of the most curious is the fact that Honor Junior, World Cup winner, two-time Ballon d'Or, etc., is currently sat in jail in Paraguay. Firstly, footballers, I mean, they almost never do time. And secondly, he, one of the most famous and recognisable players in the world, actually got detained in Paraguay for using a fake ID. Well, this week there were pictures of him playing in a, a prison yard game in classic mean machine fashion, scoring apparently five goals and setting up another six. First of all, Jack, why would Honorginia be using fake ID? Well, the first part of that response is is stupidity. Uh, he is very much led by his brother, who is his agent, who uh, basically makes all his business decisions for him. And if... Well, as, as far as I know about their relationship, he will have just handed Hanojin his passport and Hanojin would have, would have handed it over without really uh, asking many questions. So th- there's a kind of uh, diminished responsibility <laughs> that is implicit in his relationship and the way he has dealt with things. I, I don't say that to excuse him. In fact, I think it, it damns him, really. Uh, but more broadly, uh, the, the passport thing it comes against a background of of a lot of similar issues that have piled up really since his his retirement. So it's not the first passport issue he's had. His Brazilian passport was withheld after he and his brother refused to pay uh, an environmental fine. Basically, they they had a lakeside property in uh, Porto Alegre, their home state, and they they built a seventy meter pier out into this lake. It's it's an area of environmental protection they didn't get permission uh, the local authorities obviously were pretty flabbergasted by this and hit them with a, a massive fine which they just didn't pay uh, year after year the kind of interest stacked up and eventually that the only recourse the Brazilian authorities had was to detain his his passport that didn't stop uh, Brazil's tourism department making him an ambassador for the country a tourist ambassador a couple of years later in a uh, what can only be described as a brilliantly Brazilian piece of public administration. And then since then, I know social media feeds don't tell the whole story, but to scroll through Ronaldinho's Twitter or Instagram over the last few years has been to just be bowled over by the number of ridiculous tie-ins he does with uh, apps, mobile games, new sports, cryptocurrencies, investment opportunities... A lot of them feature videos of him kind of glassy-eyed, uh, endorsing something which plainly he doesn't understand. He's the Michael Owen of South American football, essentially. You uh, certainly could put it that way. And while it, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on all of these companies, there's, I, I think it's quite evident that a lot of them seem a, li- uh, you know, a little bit low rent. And it, it certainly isn't a major surprise to see, to see the kind of legal trouble he's in now. Um, wow. It looks like he could be there a while because the Paraguayan authorities are, uh, they've called for the arrest of one of his business associates and there's, uh, they believe that there's grounds for, for a legal process to do with money laundering, which was uh, related to Ronaldinho's entry into Paraguay to, to do some work at a uh, foundation he's part of. So this is, you know, to, to the outside observer, quite a funny, fluffy story. Oh, look, Ronaldinho's in jail. But it could actually be the start of quite a long thing. And, you know, obviously the answers are going to come out in due course. But Paraguay's uh, prosecutor certainly seems to be taking it very seriously. And, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if, if this rumbles on quite a while. As indeed lockdown could for all of us. But while we're all at something of a loose end, it's actually quite a good opportunity for us to talk through our favourite Honolulu memories. Uh, Jack, either from before or after he hung up his boots. Adrian, um, amid all the the no looks, the elasticos, etc., what's your what's your favourite bit? Uh, look, he was a, he was a joy to watch, wasn't he? Uh, the ultimate showman. I think my big takeaway um, 
is that he was one of the greatest free kick takers I've ever seen, maybe of all time, because he could he could clip them, he could blast them, he could do both at once and just just absolutely hammer it into the top corner. I think he was one of the first players I saw go for those cheeky under the wall free kicks where 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 defenders jump up in the air. He was just sensational. My favourite goal would be the one he scored against Sevilla at the New Camp. I think it was his first ever goal for Barcelona. And it was a mixture of two players in my in my head anyway. The first is, is Lionel Messi, the way he skipped past three defenders from about the halfway line. It was just poetry in motion. And then within a stride, he became Tony Yaboa. And he absolutely lashed this this incredible thunderbolt from 30 yards in off the crossbar, which goals always look better, don't they? When they kiss the crossbar, bounce uh, just the right side of the line. I mean, he scored so many worldies, but that for me was just just the, the, the greatest. You mentioned free kicks, of course, uh, the one against England in, in, in 2002 with Ron Atkinson deciding it was just a cross. Ronaldinho takes and David Seaman's call off his line and Brazil take the lead. Ronaldinho has scored. David Seaman is caught cold. He's just playing that. And I don't care. Nobody's going to convince me he's intended. He's trying to play it in the hole for the strikers to come and have a head run or whatever. If you ever want to sum up Brazil and England at World Cups, I mean, England, if they'd have got through that game, had a really good chance of winning that World Cup. And Paul Scholes gave a needlessly given away free kick from miles out, which not like Paul Scholes. And then England had this tendency to let goalkeepers play for too long. They did it with Shilton in the 1990 World Cup, probably shouldn't have been there. And David Seaman by this point was very uh, susceptible from high balls. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't a cross, Ron, sorry, but um, it was not very good goalkeeping. So Seaman, who'd famously been done by Naeem, uh, leading to a popular joke of the noughties. Uh, yes. On that, on that, I, I was in the squad for the next game for Arsenal um, after that. And when we pulled into, it was Chelsea away. I was uh, I was in the uh, Bertie camp where I, I travelled but didn't play. And um, <laughs> we we rocked up into Stamford Bridge. And I swear that, that a thousand Chelsea fans had turned up early on purpose just to, to line the street, the, the, the way into Stamford Bridge where the dressing room was. And... Every single one of them, to a man, started to fall backwards, um, seaman style. <laughs> and, and I can say the whole bus was absolutely cracking up. They, they, it was a merciless environment for for, for Spunky to handle, and uh, yeah, he took it. He took, he took it in good spirits. <laughs> nice, uh, Jack. You you've got another pity busy chat uh, for the Athletic on Honolulu for this Saturday, which is his birthday. Yes, turns forty. In okay, is... I know you were concentrating a lot on the um, post-football part of his career, but in terms of his actual footballing exploits, the game he played, the Clasico he played at the Bernabeu on the 19th of November 2005 is, is probably his ultimate performance, would you say? When he, he scores twice, he destroys a young Sergio Ramos and he receives a standing ovation from the, the Real Madrid fans. Ronaldinho, he wants to make it 3-0. Goes past Elguera as if he isn't there and puts it through the legs. A master at work. Wow, awesome. You are watching one of the all-time greats at the peak of his powers. That was awesome. Absolutely superb. And listen to the fans here, Real Madrid fans applauding. That evasion has gone down in history and he's, I know he's spoken about that a few times, said it made him very emotional. And I think any evasion from opposition fans is a rarity in football, but especially across that rivalry. I mean, just to to see the appreciation from the Madrid fans. Cristiano Ronaldo, probably the the most memorable recent example uh, in the game between Real Madrid and Juventus. But yeah, Ronaldinho was the kind of player who would who would cross those boundaries. I think just because of because of the way he played, not just the technical ability, not just the the skill, but I think the the kind of juvenile liberty that he brought to playing football he played like someone who didn't have the weight of the world on his shoulders who you know you imagine he would play in a similar way in a kickabout with his mates as he would uh, in front of a hundred thousand at the camp now and I think that really endeared him to people because people saw some of that innocence in him and that that is actually probably 
what defines my favourite couple of Honagia moments, which is right back at the start of his career when he's just when he just broken through at Grêmio in a big derby against Internacional. This is this is probably Brazil's most heated derby, and he's up against Dunga, who obviously you know a grumpy, snappy little terrapin of a midfielder and Honogia just completely takes the piss out of him for you know in, there's two little bits of skill one is you remember that Rodrigo Tadei trick for Roma mm. that everyone went to pieces over Honogia has did this years earlier against Dunga Dunga just looks twisted inside out and visibly pissed off and then later Aurelio, it, they called it exactly later in the tie mm. uh, Honogia gets the ball on the touchline and just knocks a little ball over, over Dunga's head, a chapelzinho, as Brazilians call it, the, the little hat. And that, that is, you know, as I'm sure any, any footballer part-time or professional knows, that's, that's a real moral humiliation for a footballer. And, and there, are, there are theories that Dunga, years later when he was Brazil's manager, would sometimes refuse to, to put Honaji in his starting lineup because of a, a grudge formed in those two moments. So that kind of, yeah, that kind of playground levity really was was what defined him as a player for me. I think one thing that gets lost amid all the kind of funny stories is that the way his career ended was actually on a, on a bit of a high when he, he was doing that kind of tour of various South American sides, even in, in Central America, in Mexico. But uh, he has that um, period when he's at Atletico Mineiro, when he actually wins the Copa Libertadores. Yeah, he was he was fantastic in that period. Certainly, in terms of athletic ability, he was he was very much on the on the way out. But that was a real an Indian summer for him because he had been at Flamengo and did quite well there. Kind of uh, a lot of good stories from that time. Flamengo set up a what was known in Brazil as a party hotline. Juan Eugenio was going out so much in Rio that the club set up a formal phone line that fans could call and report sightings of him at nightclubs. And then later at a training camp, Lucian Borgo, the coach at that time, was convinced Honajin was sneaking women into this this closed training camp and apparently spent one morning trawling through the CCTV with the hotel manager. So these stories were always following him. But yeah, as you say, at Atletico Mineiro, I think that would have been the best way for him to bow out, really. Unfortunately, he then went to Mexico came back to Brazil with Fluminense. I, I saw his Fluminense debut at the Maracanã. People with Honogia masks, and he was absolutely awful, like genuinely just unforgivably bad. And it, it was a shame he had to go out on that note. We should also mention the famous goal against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, which obviously gets replayed a lot. But I think this kind of sums up Ronaldinho's career in many ways. It was an incredible piece of skill. Now Ronaldinho. Oh, it's a terrific goal. Wonderful, wonderful goal. Everyone else paused and he kind of toe-punted it in when no one, with no backlift, no one was expecting it. But Barcelona lost that game 4-2 and Chelsea got through to the to the last eight of the Champions League. So it was kind of moments of brilliance, but no kind of kind of consistency and, and sort of, you know, he, his haul of medals at the end of his career didn't really reflect his, his skill level, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I hear this said, and I know there is that um, impression about Honorginio of what he could have been, but the guy had an extraordinary career. He won the World Cup, he won the Champions League, he won the Copa Libertadores, he won La Liga, he won Serie A with Milan, he won the Copa America. He was twice Ballon d'Or. I mean, he, he did pretty well. That's not enough for Duncan. <laughs> no. I want him to track back. Um, ironically... Ironically, a man who couldn't be imprisoned by tactical systems is now uh, <laughs> literally imprisoned. Is there, is there a measure for his successful dribbles? I, I would imagine that that's, that's kind of off off the scale with Ronaldinho. And you, just, you also have to give him credit. He timed his career at Barcelona quite brilliantly because he was the superstar, along with Samuel Eto, I guess, towards the back mm. end of it. And and he made way. He went off the rails, should we say, at just the right time for Lionel Messi to come in and and, and take his shirt. So the way the story is told, and partly by Honoljini himself, and there's a great letter to my eight-year-old self that he did on the Players' Tribune. But the, the notion is that it was actually him who saw the young Leo Messi playing with the, with the junior side at La Masia and insisted that he be brought into first team training and basically put an arm around him, you know, metaphorically and. Uh, and 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 uh, taught him, or at least gave him that message of in, enjoying his football. Well, yeah, what a message that is! And I I look back on my own career, and I, th- I think a lot of footballers do. And you just think, I wish I'd had more fun. 
and and yeah. and relaxed a little bit, and, and just yeah, and just tried tried more things, and, and just played with that smile on your face. Could be people sat here now talking about Clark or Dino, and you know he was a maverick, <laughs> but he was our maverick. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I was I was a maverick as a kid, and and then and then you kind of just get ingrained in the George Graham way, and and and, and the way of, yeah. of of playing and tracking back as you've you've pointed out, and, and that tends to take over. I, I wish personally, I've got a number of regrets from my playing career uh, but I definitely definitely wish I'd um, retained more in a Ronaldinho that's for sure I never played under George Graham but I did sit through most of his performances on Premiership Plus the pay-per-view channel in the early 2000s so I can kind of empathise there <laughs> we, should, we should do a flip reverse it on uh, if Adrian Clark had played uh, had come through under Honorginio, uh, so, so to speak so um, the other actually the other interesting kind of what if about Honorginio's career was the fact that he was really close, like a matter of hours away from joining Man United uh, in the summer of 2003 before uh, before going to Barcelona. Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson apparently blaming uh, Chief Executive Peter Kenyon for not getting the deal through. And instead of uh, picking up the Brazilian maverick, they signed Cristiano Ronaldo instead. Wow. What what would have been had those you know signings gone the other way? Well, as you say, Jack, his career post football was uh, not always as as successful. But Honorginho, how much joy he gave us uh, all, and uh, best of luck to him there in a Paraguayan jail. Very shortly, actually, courtesy of listener Ben Owens, we'll be exploring some of the other most embarrassing commercial endorsements that players have got caught up in, uh, amongst other tweets. After this. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Extra large laundry baskets? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Yes, listener Ben Owens in particular, who uh, tweeted us with, what's the most embarrassing commercial endorsement you've ever seen by a player, manager or club? Uh, Ben offers, by way of an example, some biscuits with Cristiano Ronaldo's face embossed on the tin. He saw... uh, being sold in Milan last year. That's kind of small stuff compared to some of the real big Wheeler dealers. Uh, Jack? Well, the most embarrassing endorsement I've ever seen in football was probably Michael Cox plugging Papa John's Pizza late at night on Twitter five or six years ago. But in terms of actual footballers, I'll I'll give another Ronaldo one, which was, uh, I believe the product is called the Facial Fitness Pow, which is a, a Japanese product. And I don't really know what the aim is, but it seems to be a a piece of plastic that you put in your mouth and you, you wiggle your head and there are kind of weights at the side. And I think right. it's designed to... Well, I'm not really sure what it's designed for. Uh, facial I quite exercises, admire Ronaldo. Yeah, he's done... A, I mean, the other one, which was slightly more recent, was the uh, the shoppy one. Have you seen that, where he does the dance? I don't think I have. That sounds great. Oh, right. No, uh, well, Google Ronaldo and Shoppy <laughs> uh, with two E's. Uh, oh, is, oh uh, I do know this one. It'll yeah. keep you entertained for a while. But I quite admire the, the the fact that, you know, he takes the coin and he totally commits to the advert. I mean, you, in, a, in a way that I think he emerges from his commercial activities better than, say, for example, Way Rooney does in uh, Man United's various tie-ins. That, do you remember when they did that extraordinary tie-in with uh, Independence Day? Uh, resurgence, the, the, the second one where they had Wayne and various other uh, members of the Man United squad defending Earth. You guys are footballers. What makes you think you could take on an alien army? We won 20 league titles and 12 FA Cups. Four league cups and 20 community shields. I'm fairly certain we can handle a few out-of-towners. Or, even more infamously, his tremendous uh, acting skills in the 2011 ad for Casalero del Diablo. Mm. Guys, we have a problem. The boss said that a new devil is arriving. Is he well known? Famous throughout the world. They say there is a new devil coming. Um, <laughs> it turned out to be a fairly mediocre red wine, but Rooney did look worried, so um, not the best. Um, for me, Blackburn, 
Rovers advertising Venky's Chicken, who when they took over the club in the early 2010s um, didn't go particularly well. Uh, they got virtually the whole team to do various chicken-related interaction, um, including Michel Salgado, who must have really wondered how his career was turning out at the end. Um, and they made him eat loads of spicy chicken, which he then complained about, said, my stomach was in knots. I don't like herbs and spices. So, difficult time for him. Adrian, were you ever approached to be in an advert? <laughs> no, um, not that I can think of. I did appear in the, the Arsenal catalogue once wearing nice. some, some really, really 90s baggy clothing that was that, that was awful. Um, but on the subject of, of bad endorsements, I've, I've dug out a great video from, from the great Pat Jennings. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, he obviously got roped into advertising some oil filters and the organisers... Um, decided it would be fun to dress him up as an oil filter um, in goal and he's, he's wearing this ludicrous costume diving around making making saves dressed as an oil filter so so yeah it's, it's an absolute shock you can find it on the internet <laughs> brilliant uh, well, it is a glorious tradition dating all the way back to what Bobby Moore and the local pub uh, but I, I, I'm going to say, and we mentioned him a short time ago, that Michael Owen might just be the king of all of this. Who amongst us has not felt joy fill their heart at the sight of him in the car dealership? Or that incredible Dubai voiceover in the yeah, helicopter? Yeah, that's the, that's the partridge S. And this is no ordinary chopper. It's got special powers, and once we're airborne, you'll see just what I mean. Are you buckled up and ready? Great. Let's go and see Dubai. I myself once did a, a, a fast food advert. This month, go all Italian at, with cheesy melting hearts for only 99p. Do you remember that one? <laughs> On an unrelated note, uh, this in from Andrew Lang, who says, with futsal playing such an important part in Honolginio's development and incomparable skill, should our kids be playing more of it? Well, it's a bit tricky at the moment, of course, Andrew. But in general, this is an idea that's been floated from time to time that, you know, were the nation's footballers growing up doing uh, uh, flicks and tricks in a contained, confined space that they would then go out and rock the world. Jack, you're nodding. Well, I was thinking about this the other day and I'm sure I'm sure things have evolved a great deal since when I was playing youth football. Or I would hope they had. But I was walking past uh, a youth session in the local park and these were very young kids. They were probably no older than 11, but they were playing on a surface that was, you know, closer to a ploughed field than anything uh, that someone might play futsal on, for example. And just the, sh the sheer difference of skill required uh, to control, a, you know, a ball bumping all over the place in a muddy field and even today, you see a lot of kids using a size five football when, you know, their feet are barely can get under it. And obviously that changes the, the way you touch the ball, the way you control it, the way you kick it. Uh, futsal takes away a lot of those variables that perhaps it's, you know, you could, you could argue that you get something extra from learning to deal with those things. But being able to focus on the, the pure technical aspects of it on a on a flat court with a, the right size ball, keeping the ball on the floor as much as possible. I think there's a lot going for it. And there's a reason why Brazilian footballers, Spanish footballers for decades have been so technically gifted. And I think that plays a big part in it. Yeah, look, I, I wish I had played futsal as a kid. That is for sure. Some of my best memories of growing up or first first best memories of competitive football local sports center half term holidays in the indoor ball court with that giant tennis ball and they were absolutely awesome days and futsal reminds me of that i went to watch a friend of mine who, who was a semi pro player at the time played for england at futsal and i went to watch it and it was it was awesome and i sat there thinking i wish that, that this had been at the forefront of our minds when I was younger. It's a, it's a great game, and 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 hopefully the FA can can bring in some programs for for kids to play it, especially during those months when we are back to normal, where games are called off. It's absolutely perfect for for winter in the sports hall. Um, hone your skills with futsal. Such a fast game, reliant on touch, control, and and and, and technique. Absolutely brilliant. 
There's a weird fetishization of muddy pitches on Twitter. So someone will put up a clip from Match of the Day 1973 and you know it's at the baseball ground and it's like looks like the Somme and everyone's crawling through mud and they're like, ah, oh, this was real football, this is when men were men, this is what proper football should be. Well, fast forward to now, they're the same people complaining that their kids haven't played football for three months because all the games have been called off because the pitches are completely waterlogged. Um, I think my son's team have played maybe two or three times this year when they should have had eight or nine games pre-pandemic this is as well so um, yeah I think all the money that's in football stick a 4G pitch in every park in in the UK and our skill level would go up a lot. Not to make this hyper local but Duncan can relate to this I used to live much more centrally in London in Southwark and there are five side pitches cages a lot of them but a few AstroTurf pitches everywhere come out a little bit further where Duncan and I live now in in Lewisham I honestly there's not a football pitch that I know of within a 20 minute walk of my house that isn't a power league you know obviously power leagues are sure they serve their purpose but actually having open uh, free to use pitches that are that are uh, designed to get kids playing football with a uniform bounce and you know obviously accessible to all I think that is something that this country I think could could do with more if you go to Brazil for instance and it's not perfect but Every tiny little community has a has a pitch, even if it's just gravel. Same with Spain. You know, a lot of the Spanish players learn on on kind of dusty gravel pitches. Again, it has its downsides, but it's a it's it's a reliable surface. It you can play on it in all weathers, and the ball isn't going to bounce off a random tuft of turf. You think that would teach them to stay on their feet, gravel pitches overseas? <laughs> Yet, yeah, ironically, not. Listener, if you've got a little more time on your hands than normal right now, you may be delighted to know that Football Manager 2020 is free on Steam currently. It's going to be that way until 3pm GMT next Wednesday, March the 25th. So fill those free hours with a bang on Football Manager 2020. And if you don't already have a Steam account, go to www.steampowered.com. Yes, indeed. Flicks and kicks celebrating, in some cases, uh, the art of the movie about football. Asking along the way, uh, why are good ones so rare? Other important questions we hope to address are why Tim Roth ended up in that movie about Seth Blatter. Did Stan Collymore really, you know, with Sharon Stone? And which Hollywood A-lister compared Ali McCoist to Sir Lawrence Olivier? Whoa! Uh, today, though, we begin with the uh, Hammer Hobbit hooligan crossover classic that is Green Street. Hollywood and executive producer John Favreau's bizarre attempt to tackle the very real issue of East End soccer violence. The story of this of a disgraced Harvard student who falls in with West Ham's Green Street elite, a hooligan firm, essentially a different kind of iron men. My name is Matt Buckner. Last spring I got kicked out of Harvard two months shy of my diploma. What I was about to learn, no Ivy League school in the world could teach me. Now, the producers signed up uh, Elijah Wood, fresh from playing Frodo, for the lead. I don't know why they decided to give him a ring. That's how all the trouble started last time, of course. But as disconcerting as his presence is, it's nothing to the casting as East End firm top boy of Charlie Hunnan, whose approach to the accent is as casual as the fashions he sports. See, we might be in a fine and all that. But it's really about reputation. Humiliating another mob in a row, or doing something that the other firms get to hear or talk about. Like a yank in his first fight back when one of Birmingham's main lads. There you go, Charlie Hunnan, literally the fakest geezer since the lower six borrowed the bicarbonate. Uh, what your thoughts, <laughs> Duncan? Well, the weirdest thing about his accent, which is terrible, it's up there with Dick Van Dyke's in Mary Poppins in terms of misappropriation, but... The one point he actually nails it is when he's doing an impersonation of another fan. So it's yeah. like Inception. So there's a point where he's impersonating another fan and actually does a realistic Cockney accent. So if he'd have only done that for the whole film, it might have been better. But he actually, the acting he does is pretty good. It's just that he cannot get away from his pronunciation, which is terrible. 
you, you assume he's he's a foreigner, don't you? You assume that he's he's not from England, but but he's he's a former biker grove actor from the board in Newcastle. It's it's just the worst piece of casting in 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 movie history, as far as I'm concerned. I did see a few of the a few of the reviews. BBC described it as calamitous. E Online said saddled with a predictable storyline and such feckless dialogue that you can't help but view the whole thing as an exercise in stupidity. It was just it was just it was just so bad. Well, appropriately for a film about West Ham, it, it got an absolute hammering. Uh, <laughs> there, there were. A, a load of issues with the film, the match scenes that are filmed with all the panache of a local news report, and the plot with its kind of tiresome boy-to-man-through-soccer-violence element. But I think the Frodo and Frodo, uh, as I like to call them, kind of feel yeah. double act, is well, what really sinks it for they, me. They managed to trick West Ham by telling them they're making a film about West Ham and it's going to be a, like a celebration of the, the history of the club. So they were like, yeah, yeah, you can film inside. Then they realised it was a hooligan film and were like, whoa, whoa, hang on. So they only ever really got clips from one game, which was Gillingham at home and West Ham were in the, in the what is the championship now. Um, and obviously the international American audience wasn't ready for Gillingham, so they changed that to Birmingham and then had this bizarre scene where the Zulus, obviously Birmingham's firm, were, were chasing the GSE around East London for a bit. Obviously the GSE come out on top because they're better. Um, but yeah, the, the, in terms of actual match action, that is, that's your lot, really. The weirdest thing is when it starts, um, when Frodo gets to London, um, <laughs> you know, in many ways, obviously, it takes a long time to get to Mordor. With the district line, it can take a long time to get out east as well, so that was a good bit of interesting. Um But he arrives in Bank, and <laughs> yeah. a bin has been turned over, and he's like, what's happened here? Was there a riot? And uh, his sister says, welcome to Match Day Madness. Tottenham were in last night. It's like... What they were in bank turning over a thing. <laughs> what, what is going on? Well, she says she says Tottenham w- was in town. It's the same town. The other thing that goes through this whole film is this this kind of plot twist that that um, Elijah Wood's character is a journalist. He's training to be a journalist. His dad's a journalist for the New York Times. And there's this constant refrain of the the one group of people that the West Ham firm <laughs> hate more than the police, hate more than Millwall. Are journalists, and it's like I'm not really sure that's true. And there's a scene where where Frodo visits the the Times in London, and one of the other firms spots him going in, and it's like he, he looks physically revulsed by a man visiting, uh, you know, a fairly mainstream newspaper. It's it's a that's kind of fair. weird plot twist. Well, yeah, maybe, yeah. So I had never watched this uh, until last night. I did my due diligence, and even during a time of lockdown when I can't go outside and can't do anything, I still had the very strong feeling that these were two hours of my life I was never going to get back. The thing about the accent, obviously, the the one you've mentioned, it kind of semi-Australian. I, I thought, <laughs> was he called Charlie Hunnam? I, thought he, I mm. thought he was Australian. When I logged on to Wikipedia, I was fully ready to see he was from Melbourne. But Elijah Wood doesn't seem to be able to do his own accent. Like he... It's like he's squeezing his lines out through a toothpaste tube and he gets lost all the time. And I think actually the most the most harrowing part of the film, which is full of glorified idiocy, is actually Frodo's facial hair, which Mm. is just it's just a hint of a wisp and it almost looks accidental. But what I was impressed, I was very impressed that they got Mark E. Smith to play Bother, though. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> there had yeah. to be a Bother, didn't there? Uh, remarkably, it won awards, didn't it? This feel. Did it? Uh, yeah, non-ironic awards. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah, I've read. I've read that they won best feature at the LA Fem Film Festival, best well, of the fest at the Malibu Film Festival. This is if you trust Wikipedia. I don't these know. are major festivals no, think... as well. <laughs> well, they are now. I mean, I think. It does have a certain appeal to a certain audience. Um, just yeah, a couple of bits that, well, I think it was very popular in America. It did lead to the much, much worse Green Street 2, which we'll probably go through in month 11 of lockdown. But a couple of points that, uh, other points from this, another big uh, bit in the middle of the film is they go to Manchester to fight yeah. United fans. Um, now, they, they're tipped off that the United fans are at Manchester Piccadilly Railway Station, actually it, they're at Macclesfield, even for these shots. So they stop the train, jump out at Macclesfield, sort of Frodo tricks a van driver into letting them in the back of a van. 
they, they don't get any advantage from this. They still end up fighting the same group of fans that they would have faced. It's just that the United fans have like two less seconds to prepare. And then after that event, which they win, the fight, um, Frodo says the story travelled across England quicker than the death of Princess Diana. Well, No, he says Lady Diana, is she? Okay, well, but how? How? How is that? Like, that's the biggest news story to ever hit the UK. Right. Like, everything okay. stopped. So, yeah. Can I just say, of all the of all the really bizarre things about this film, it, it, for me it was the ending. Just when you you thought it couldn't get worse, when they have the big boss level battle at the end, accompanied by this appalling brothers in arms knockoff soundtrack. We try hard to learn, but the lesson is lost there. And then in the middle of that, as they're there on some building site knocking seven bells out of each other, one of the characters' wife drives up. Uh, as Ian McIntosh memorably described it in his Minute by Minute on the Mirror on this film, like she's doing the school run. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and she then kind you've of got... is because there's a baby in the back seat. So Right, yeah. And then you've got the horrendously mawkish uh, post-fight voiceover in which Frodo says, I would never have the chance to thank him but I could live in a way that would honour him as if he's trying to do justice to fallen heroes in world wars rather than just some thug who's had his lights well, knocked out. He recovers his, his reputation back in America, but he basically got stitched up by some uh, posh guy at university um, and who's then shown celebrating getting the Epstein contract, which has taken on a wholly different tone, I think, in these days. Um, and he goes to the toilet and, uh, and Frodo strolls in and he's now hard because he's a veteran of, of fighting men out of the back of vans. So, yeah, there is, a kind of, there is a kind of closing of the circle. But, and then he walks down the American street, you know, singing the West Ham bubble song. So I'm not sure nice. what we learned really from it. Well, Garen Curry says, Green Street is without doubt, and I can't stress this enough, one of the worst motion pictures ever made. Mark Gelbert. Uh, pitches in with uh, during filming Elijah Wood came to Upton Park and did a few keepy uppies on the pitch at half time I'm not sure if it was with the uh, toilet roll or, or, or what I kept a clipping from the Daily Star with the headline on me Ed Frodo but sadly says Mark <laughs> I can't find it now um, there you go hmm. did we also spot when the major who no one saw coming turns out to be uh, Charlie Hunnam's character's elder brother a, you know a real shock that was um, when he's back in the pub, uh, his mate, his loyal mate, is uh, Lee, Dawn's boyfriend from The Office, Vernon Hogg's Lee. And if you actually look at the timeline, it would make sense that this could have come post uh, The Office. So maybe right. maybe they're in the same timeline. Excellent. Well, a, a surgical analysis uh, of Green Street. If it's not the best uh, football film ever made, is it the worst? No. Green Street 2, for starters, is about a thousand times Have you worse. seen it, Duncan? <laughs> I have, yeah. And maybe Ronaldinho is living this life because essentially um, it's the the firms from the first Green Street, the Millwall and, and West Ham firms, are now in prison, um, which seems to be a prison in Mexico or Central America. They're all in kind of orange jumpsuits and they get, through a very complicated set of manoeuvres, the governor of the prison basically allows the them to have a big fight and whoever wins that fight is released from prison i'm not sure if that fits into many legal <laughs> frameworks but that, there you go so, so realistic. <laughs> green street two there's a green street three as well uh, many l listeners have written in suggesting films we should be doing uh, a shot at glory gets a, a lot of mentions apparently findy mark's big fan of that one as well uh, when saturday comes fever pitch damn united united passions which is just extraordinary escape to victory and of course the goal trilogy also the workers cup film people uh wrote in and said um do watch our film and, and have a chat about that uh it's a extraordinary documentary they made about uh, workers in qatar's labor camps building the 2022 world cup stadiums and a football tournament that they themselves then competing we'll definitely have a, a chat about that soon meantime what film do we want to look at in flicks and kicks next week i think you should do united passions just to ensure that i don't have to watch it at a future date <laughs> it is an amazing film jack it takes you through the whole history of the beautiful game from its very origins in switzerland to its current 
It's current. It's current state in in Switzerland. Uh, anyway, uh, just a magnificent. We'll we'll get on to that. I think we might try and go for more of a um, a feel good favorite. An escape to victory sits atop most people's lists of football films. Is it any good though? Uh, the answers may surprise you when we return to Flicks and Kicks in next Thursday's Totally Football Show. For that, on Monday we'll be back with uh, Michael Cox, Tom Williams, and Matt Davis Adams. Have you guys got any big plans in in the meantime over the weekend, Duncan, Jack, Adrian? <laughs> no, I mean let's let's be honest. Green Street does have one bit of medical advice in it. Um, after they've been out all night, uh, Charlie Hunnam's character says, "English breakfast, double dose of aspirin, and you'll feel sweet as a nut." So, you know, I'm not sure if that copes with COVID nineteen, but it's worth thinking. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us today. Many thanks to you, Jack and Duncan, and you, listener, for being uh, for being along for the ride. Do join us then on Monday. And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Hello, I'm Emma. And I'm Jeffers. And we're the Series Linked Podcast. Subscribe to our channel for all of the biggest TV interviews. And to stay on top of all the latest telly. It said Gervais sometimes fluffs his lines. Like I'd have left them in. It's a stunning place to shoot. I like put something up on Instagram and there's somebody a post going, oh, you, look at you, lazy-eyed, you're ugly, aren't you? And on the way in upcoming episodes, we speak to Imelda Staunton, David Baddiel, Carl Pilkington and many more. Just search for Series Linked. That's Series Linked. Muddy Knees Media.